Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Um, boy, it's a special episode today. You are going to love the conversation we are having today about a fascinating book uh, written by an old friend of ours and a terrific uh, historian and scholar of America and particularly of the 19th century, Professor Jonathan White. Uh, many of you know Professor White from his many books, from his conversations previously here on The American Idea. Uh, John has been part of Ashbrook's programs for teachers um, around the country many times over. Uh, we thank him for that and for all the good work that he's doing, both teaching and in his scholarship, illuminating great stories from America's past that give us insight into the character and principles of this nation and the people who've shaped it. Today, we're going to be talking about his book, Shipwrecked, a true Civil War story of, and you're going to love this subtitle, of mutinies, jailbreaks, blockade running, and the slave trade. Professor Jonathan White, thank you so much for joining us today on The American Idea. Thank you for having me back. Um, let, let me just show our readers. I've got it right here on my phone. Here it is. It's a great, great cover. Wonderful. Um, I've read into the book, and I have to tell you, Appleton Oaksmith is a really interesting human being with a very interesting story. Tell us about the book, and particularly tell us about the inspiration for the book. How, after you've written a book, A House Built by Slaves, you've won mm -hmm. the Gilder Lehrman Prize um, for. Uh, your great scholarship on the American Civil War era and period. What led you to a book like this? It's a great question. Believe it or not, I actually finished this one first, but they got sort of swapped in the order of publication. It was around 2014, I had the idea to write a history of the slave trade during the Civil War, and I wanted to write a broad history that would look at both the illegal transatlantic slave trade that was persisting into the 1860s, but then also look at the domestic slave trade in the Confederacy. And so I started doing some digging on those topics, and I had a student research assistant in the summer of 2016, and I gave him a list of the names of slave traders that I was interested in having him research. And I, I said, you know, take this list and go into newspapers.com and other databases and just see what you can find. And one day I was sitting right here in my chair in my office at Christopher Newport University, and he came in through the door and he said, have you ever heard of Appleton Oaksmith? And I thought for a minute and I thought that's the strangest name I've ever heard. No. And I asked why he asked me that. And he said, well, his name keeps coming up in these articles I'm finding about other slave traders. And so I told him to just start searching for him as well, see what you could find. And after a while, I began to look at the material he was gathering, started to look for some stuff on my own, and I decided I'm going to have a chapter on this guy. 
But the more I researched his story, the more I decided he needed a biography of his own because he really illuminates so many different important moments in 19th century America. And so I jettisoned the idea of doing this broad history of the slave trade and focused instead on a biography of Appleton Oak Smith. And that's what became Shipwrecked. And believe it or not, my original subtitle was about twice as long, but the publisher wouldn't <laughs> let me do this sort of 19th century type long sentence, long subtitle. So it is what it is now, but it still captures a lot of what's in the book. Our listeners want to know, who's Appleton Oak Smith? So Appleton Oak Smith was born in Maine in the 1820s, and he was a child of two very prominent writers in 19th century America. His mother was an, uh, was a first wave feminist writer. She was a poet, lecturer, essayist. She wrote novelists. She wrote all sorts of different types of literature in the 1840s, 50s, and into the 60s. I believe that she would be famous today if what happened in my book hadn't happened. I think we would know her like we know Susan B. Anthony or Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but her life was really destroyed by what her sons ultimately did or were accused of doing. Now, her name was Elizabeth Oakes Smith. Her maiden name was Elizabeth Oakes Prince, and she married a journalist named Seba Smith. And some of the listeners may be familiar with a, a creation that Seba Smith had, Seba Smith in the 1830s created a character named Jack Downing, who is this fictional advisor to Andrew Jackson. And Jack Downing in these fictional stories would travel from Maine to Washington, D.C. and give Andrew Jackson advice on how he what his policy should be. And everyone in 19th century America loved the Jack Downing stories. It didn't matter if you were a Whig or a Democrat. So Lincoln loved him, Henry Clay loved him, Daniel Webster loved him, but so did Andrew Jackson. Everyone loved the Jack uh -huh. Downing stories. And so these two prominent literary figures had several sons, and one of them was Appleton Oaksmith. And Elizabeth raised her kids to, to love literature, to be multilingual. I think Appleton knew four foreign languages, but he was always pulled to the sea. And one other thing I'll just say quickly about his parents. Her maiden name was Elizabeth, middle name Oaks, and then last name was Prince. And she married this guy named Seba Smith. And for some reason, we don't know exactly why, we don't know if it was her feminist views or if she just thought Smith was too boring of a last name, but she had the state of New York legally change her son's last names, and she just smushed together her maiden middle name and her married surname, Oaks and Smith, and created the last name Oaksmith, which then made it very easy to, in some ways, to research the book because if you search for the last name Oaksmith, it's going to be one of her descendants. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, this is fascinating. So do we know anything, particularly if she has a husband who's writing um, stories that certainly involve politics, being an advisor to Andrew Jackson, do you know anything about the family's politics? Because, of course, politics becomes very important in Appleton Oaksmith's story. Yeah, she appears to have been a Democrat and her sons were Democrats. He appears to have been more Whiggish in his politics. So my sense is that they had different political views when it came to partisan politics. He was, though, a supporter of her efforts to try to fight for women's rights, even though they had a different politics in that regard. Were they at all connected to abolitionists or abolitionism? Yeah, she was... 
she traveled in literary circles in New York City. So she knew Henry Wadsworth Longfellow as a child, and he would emerge as a poet. And with in eighteen in eighteen forty two, he actually published a, a small volume of poetry of abolitionist poems. She was very close with Horace Greeley. She knew Garrett Smith. So she traveled in these circles. She also was close with Edgar Allan Poe, who was a great admirer of her work. But for her, women's rights was the top priority. And she had sympathy for abolitionism, even though she actually, in later life, showed extraordinary racism after the Civil War. Um, but she she really wanted to focus on women's rights first. You said that despite having these amazingly literary parents, Appleton was drawn to the sea. What What happened with him as a young man? So he took his first voyage when he was 16 years old, went on a commercial voyage to China. And I should say he was following in the footsteps of his ancestors. And so I call the book Shipwrecked because mar the maritime world is central to the story. And it really goes back generations before he was born. His maternal grandfather died at sea. Several other others who were close to his family died at sea. Ultimately, I think at least a dozen people drown in the book, a dozen named people. I mean, a lot. Yeah, a, wow. Don't let this scare your re your listeners away. It, it's a depressing <laughs> story in some ways, but it's still a, an incredible story. But yeah, lots of people drown, but that doesn't dishearten him. And so he takes to the sea from a young age and he never really looks back. Um, he His first voyage, as you say, is a commercial uh, trip to China. What 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 co comes next? What's part of that trip, or what comes after that trip that starts to shape him into who he becomes? So after that voyage, he and his family settle in New York City, and his mother is in these literary circles. And by the 1840s, her marriage is really falling apart, and they stay married until her husband dies in the mid-18, late 1860s, but she really grows to resent her husband. And he doesn't go to literary soirees with her. Instead, she takes her two oldest sons, Appleton being one of them. <clears throat> and so Appleton, I believe, falls in love with a woman named Anne Lynch, who was a prominent literary hostess in New York City in the 1840s. And things fall apart. And by the end of the 1840s, he decides to go back to the sea. And so he takes a trip around the coast of South America and winds up in San Francisco. And by now it's the early 1850s and he's there for the gold rush. And he thinks he's going, when he's on his way, he thinks he's going to settle in San Francisco, that this is where he's going to live the rest of his days. But he finds that San Francisco is riddled with crime and, in fact, with a lot of arson. And people are coming in, burning down San Francisco, which is a wooden city at that point. And so an illegal or extra-legal vigilance committee rises up and tries to suppress all this crime and arson. And Appleton gets involved in this, but he becomes really uncomfortable with it. And he doesn't really like the idea of being part of this extra-legal police force. And so he resigns from that, he gets a ship, and he heads back around the coast of South America. And all the while, he's trying to find a cargo that will take him back to New York City. But he can't find one. And finally, he gets to Rio de Janeiro, 
And the the Brazilian authorities actually fire on him as he's entering the port because they don't recognize his ship. He gets into the port at Rio. He goes around the city for a while. And in Rio, he gets connected with a Portuguese firm that says, we've got a cargo for you, but it's it's bound for the west coast of Africa. And so his next voyage is going to be heading across the Atlantic Ocean. And tell us about then... Um, in the in the book, you recount um, the tale that continues on from then because it's, it begins to get um, more complicated, perhaps more tangled and darker. That's right. So as a little bit of background, at this point in 1851, 1852, the slave trade is illegal to most parts of the world, but the British and the Americans will not work together to try to enforce uh, abolition of the slave trade across the Atlantic Ocean. If I'm not wrong, the Americans had, uh, I think Jefferson signed the bill, the law, right? In yeah. 1808 or 1809 to begin the process of making the slave trade illegal. The British That's Empire right. then is later in the, is it the 1830s? Right. So the British abolished slavery in 1833. So Jefferson signs a law in 1807, the summer of 1807, to make it effective January 1st, 1808, that the slave trade is illegal. And that was the earliest possible date that slave trading could be abolished under the Constitution, because there had been a compromise measure to basically give the South 20 years to import Africans if they wanted to. So the slave trade's made illegal in 1808. The slave trade continues. And so in 1820, Congress declares that slave trading is now piracy, punishable by death. No one ever really faces this punishment until Lincoln's administration in 1862. Slave trade continues. The British abolish the slave trade, and they form treaties with nations around the Atlantic world. And those nations say to the British, you're allowed to search our vessels and look for evidence of slave trading. The Americans sign a treaty with the British in 1842 called the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. And this is a treaty to try to get the British and Americans to work together to abolish the transatlantic slave trade. But the Americans will not allow the British to search American vessels because they have a memory of the War of 1812 with British ships going and searching American vessels and then impressing American sailors into the Royal Navy. And they do not want the British going onto American ships. For them, this would be a great degradation. Uh -huh. And so the outcome is that the Americans pledge, we will put ships on the west coast of Africa, and the British will put ships on the west coast of Africa, and the Americans can search American vessels, and the British can search British and then other nations' vessels, but they're not allowed to search each other. And so that really matters for what's about to happen next in Appleton's story. So he's going across the Atlantic Ocean and makes it to the west coast of Africa. And when he gets to the Congo River, he finds that the current is tremendously strong and he's not able to get into the Congo River itself. And while he's out on the Atlantic sort of fighting this current, two British ships of the British Africa squadron come up and next to him. Now, under international law, he did not have to allow them onto his ship, but he does it anyway. And my sense is that he didn't think he had anything to hide. And so he lets the British sailors onto his ship. They have a meal together. They talk together. And presumably they looked around to see if there was any evidence of slave trading and didn't find anything. 
And I will say I went, I, I've consulted the records at the British National Archives, and I know that one of these ships had bound a slave trader a week earlier. So they knew what they were doing, and they if they had seen evidence, they they would have seen it. Uh -huh. They go on their way, and Appleton, over the next few days, continues to try to get on the Congo River. He finally makes it around a point called Shark's Point, and at that point, his ship gets beached. And 3,000 African warriors come and attack his vessel. And he was a sitting duck. He would have been killed except for these British sailors who had been on board a ship a day or two earlier come to his rescue. They give him some cannon. They fire at the Africans on the coastline. Eventually, they get on his ship. They take off his cargo so that it becomes lighter and he becomes free. And he then hightails it out of there and makes it back to the Western Hemisphere with his life. And this moment actually makes international headlines, and it becomes known as the Battle of the Congo, and newspapers in England and in America and other places are reporting on this, this fight that Appleton had in, in Africa. When he escapes back to the Western Hemisphere, what happens then? So he actually spends a day or two on the British ship. And then he makes it back to Brazil and then to New York, and he settles back in New York with his family. He then gets involved in some other international affairs. I mean, I, I've done a couple of talks about him, and some people have likened him to the Forrest Gump of the 19th century, because every <laughs> moment that of importance that happens, he seems to pop up. So in 1854, there was a movement led by a guy named William Walker to try to form an empire in Nicaragua, and he set himself up as the president of Nicaragua, and Appleton Oaksmith became his minister to, to Washington, D.C. Wow, that's, that's odd. How, yeah, that, how does this happen? I don't know exactly how he was able to make this connection to William Walker. He must have had some of these connections in New York City that that got him connected to Walker. He actually went to Nicaragua at one point and then went back to New York. He was trying to fundraise for it, was not very successful at that. And he went to Washington, D.C. to try to be the ambassador. And the federal administration at first talked with him, but then said, no, we're not going to recognize you. And things did not go well in Nicaragua. William Walker ended up losing his life in this sort of attempt. A few years after that, he gets connected again through his mother's literary circles to a, a man who tries to fight for Cuban liberation. And Appleton again gets now involved in that international affair, and he becomes a gun runner loading up ships with weapons and sending them down to the Caribbean, trying to get them to these these Cuban fighters who are fighting for independence from Spain. The ships wind up in the Gulf of Mexico, basically circling until they get instructions from him. They end up getting captured by federal authorities. He goes to court. He tries to claim that he wasn't doing anything wrong. The federal authorities saw right through that, and he ended up losing those ships. And so through these two international affairs that he got involved in, he winds up losing his shirt. And by the end of the 1850s, he's flat broke. But then, of course, the Civil War and the outbreak of the Civil War with the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860 and then secession and then the firing on Fort Sumter. He's a man from Maine. I think our listeners are going to think, well, he rallies to the Union cause in support of the Lincoln administration. Yeah, it's not that simple. And one of the things that's always so interesting to think about in U.S. history is that the slave trade that was run 
when it was run by Americans was more often, I think, run by New Yorkers and New Englanders than by Southerners. It was New England shipbuilders who were in the 17th and 18th centuries involved in this slave trading. And during the Civil War, there's going to be another main slave trader who gets executed by Lincoln. So you would think that he would be sympathetic towards the Lincoln administration. And what's interesting is at first he is pro-union. So in January of 1861, he has found himself how the Tammany Hall Democratic political machine in New York City, and he tries to organize pro-union rallies to stave off secession and keep the union together. But he's also very pro-slavery, and because he's putting forward pro-slavery ideas as part of these rallies, he can't get Republicans to work with him, and ultimately his efforts go nowhere. Now, I mentioned he was flat broke by the end of the 1850s. He married a woman in the late 1850s who he had only known for 10 days, and that's going to wind up having some major implications for the story as we move forward. Uh -huh. He also then gets involved with a fish oil factory owner on Long Island and somehow begins working with this fish oil factory owner. And again, I don't know how he made that connection, but by 1861, he's working with this factory owner, and he and the factory owner allegedly decide that they need whale oil for the fish oil factory. Now, the problem is this looks really suspicious to a lot of people by 1861 when the Civil War is beginning, because petroleum had been discovered in Titusville, Pennsylvania in 1859. And oh, so course. by 1861, the whaling industry had completely tanked, and there were stockpiles of whale oil in Nantucket and New Bedford, Massachusetts. And so it looked really suspicious when a newbie decided, I'm going to get into the whaling industry. And so Appleton begins plying the docks of, of Manhattan and New Bedford, Massachusetts, buying old whaling vessels. And he tells the sellers, yeah, I'm getting into the whaling industry. They think this is suspicious, and so the people in New York sell him a ship, take the money, and then immediately go to Lincoln's new U.S. Marshal in New York City and says, hey, this guy Appleton Oaksmith bought a ship, and we don't think he's really whaling. We think he's going on a slaving voyage, and this is going to lead to ultimately his arrest. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. Hi, this is John Moser, chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches U.S. history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org programs. 
what happens to the point where he gets arrested? Because this is a really interesting part of the book, in my opinion. Yeah. So one of the things I, I try to do in this book is show just how thoroughly Lincoln was committed to destroying the transatlantic slave trade. And part of that involves him executing a slave trader, which I've alluded to. It's a guy named Nathaniel Gordon, and that's a very famous aspect of the story. But then part of it has to do with him arguably violating federal law and part of it arguably violating international law a couple years in the future and also involving Appleton. So as many of your listeners probably know, in 1861, Abraham Lincoln suspended the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus. And that was a very you know, complicated and controversial decision because for many people, they said Lincoln doesn't have the authority to do this. And what the suspension of habeas corpus essentially allowed was for Lincoln to be able to arrest people and hold them without charges. And he did this under the suspension clause, which is in Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution. And many legal commentators then and since have said, well, Lincoln couldn't do this because Article 1 has to do with congressional powers. So Lincoln suspends the writ of habeas corpus, and that allows him to arrest people who are suspected of aiding the Confederacy. Well, Lincoln also used that suspension, or I should say his Secretary of State, William Seward, did. They used that to go after Appleton Oaksmith. They didn't have a warrant for his arrest in New York City, but they wanted to get him before he headed out to sea. And so they used that suspension as a justification for arresting Appleton. Now, no one thought he was disloyal because he's out there again with these pro-union meetings, but they used that as a pre pretense for then getting him thrown in prison and they threw him into a military fort in New York City. Now, what amazingly happens after this is he escapes from jail. Yeah. <laughs> to top it all off, how does that happen? And then what happens after he escapes from, from jail? Yeah. So he is thrown in prison in New York. He's transferred up to Boston. They worry that they can't get a conviction in Boston or in New York City, so which was a very pro-Southern city. So they transfer him up to Boston, where it's much more pro-Union. And then they turn him over to civil authorities, and he gets thrown into a, a jail called the Charles Street Jail, which is now a luxury hotel in Boston called the Liberty Hotel. And your listeners can go stay there for six hundred bucks <laughs> a night or so. I've never stayed there, but I have had two meals there in a restaurant called Clink, which I believe is right where Appleton's prison cell was located. <laughs> so he's turned over to civil authorities. He is indicted in court for outfitting ships for the slave trade. He is found guilty in June of 1862. And while he's awaiting sentencing in September of 1862, he escapes from jail. And we don't know exactly how he did it. I have my hunch. My hunch is, so he was a very literate guy, very well known. People knew his family. He was very well traveled. And the guards actually enjoyed talking to him. And so the guards gave him some extra rope, you might say, extra leeway in the prison to do what he wanted to do. And they would let him hang out in the guard station while they would go do other things. And then when he was ready to go to bed, he would just go into his cell and they would lock him in at night. And my hunch is this night of September 10th, 1862, he made his bed look like he was asleep in it. So he piled things under the covers. Uh. So it was lumpy. And while they went off doing something else, 
they thought he went into his bed and he was probably hiding somewhere else in the prison. They locked his door thinking he was in there. He hung around the prison all night. And then in the morning when they started to make breakfast, I think he made his escape and got over the prison wall using a ladder. And he first went to Canada or he possibly went to Canada, but within a matter of weeks, he had shown up in Havana and his his brother was living in Havana at the time. And so he makes it down there and begins to recuperate his health. Do we have any idea how he makes it that far from Boston to Havana? He had to do it by boat and he he may have gone to Canada first or he may have gotten on a ship out of Boston or New York or Portland. We don't know exactly how he did it, but somehow he took a boat down to down to Havana. And one of the most, but this occasions, if if our listeners can possibly believe it, what might even be a more amazing story after this, that shows the as you say in the book, the Lincoln administration's dogged determination to go after people they think are have been involved or will be involved in the slave trade. Yeah, because he's sitting in Havana. What happens next? So he becomes a Confederate blockade runner and has several, I call them high-speed chases. They're as fast as they could be in the 19th century on the Gulf of Mexico, running cotton between Galveston and Havana. But while he's doing that, a Cuban slave trader escapes from Cuba and goes to New York City with a lot of money. And so the Cuban authorities and the Spanish authorities want to get this Cuban slave trader named Jose Augustin Arguelles back. Meanwhile, the American authorities want to get Appleton Oaksmith back because he's been convicted, but he escaped. And so what what I believed happened was that the Spanish minister in Washington, D.C. got together with the Secretary of State, William Seward, and made a deal. Look, we don't have an extradition treaty, so we can't legally swap these guys. But if you kidnap our guy, we'll kidnap your guy, and we'll just swap them. It's amazing. And Mutual kidnapping. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, this was really controversial. It made, once it was done, it made national headlines. The conservative members of Lincoln's cabinet are horrified by it. The Democrats put it in their platform that Lincoln is violating the right of asylum. And even the radical Republicans who challenge Lincoln from, you might, to use an anachronistic term, from the political left, they also put it in their platform saying Lincoln is violating the Constitution, but that's exactly what Lincoln allowed to happen. So the U.S. Marshal in New York City finds this Cuban guy, he arrests him, takes him back to Havana, and Arguelles gets 19 years at hard labor in Cuba. Meanwhile, the Cuban police go after Appleton Oaksmith. And I won't tell the full story because I want the readers to, to find to read it and find out what happens. That's in, right. In the detail I was able to put together. But suffice it to say, Appleton gets wind of this and he escapes the night before it happens or the day before it happens. And the Cuban police get the wrong guy and do not get Appleton. And he winds up making another escape from right within the clutches of the Cuban police and federal authorities. And I have to tell our listeners, get the book and read that because it's an amazing, amazing story of the escape. Uh, okay, so he escapes. The Civil War, of course, eventually comes to an end in 1865. He is still technically a wanted fugitive. Mm -hmm. And what happens? Yeah, so 
I mentioned a little bit ago that Appleton had sort of had an impulse marriage where he met this woman, Isada, and after 10 days married her. They had a couple kids together. Isada and he ended up having a very unhappy marriage. And that's going to have some major implications for what's going to happen to him. So he escapes from Cuba, goes up to, to Canada. And this is so wild. Indiana in the 1850s adopted some very lax divorce laws. And you could essentially get a mail order divorce from Indiana for any reason. If you just produce fraudulent papers that said you lived in Indiana and Indiana, which today is a very conservative state, was more than happy to grant these these divorces. So he divorces his wife without her knowing. He goes to Canada, marries his cousin and then takes his new wife and kids from his first marriage over to England. He summons his first wife to come over, and she thinks she's being reunited with her husband. Instead, he gives her papers and says, sign these papers, finalizing our divorce, or you'll never see the children again. And so his wife, his first wife, Isada, feels compelled to do this. She signs the papers. Well, while all this is going on, Appleton's mother, who has been fighting for his pardon for half a decade at this point, gets a meeting with Andrew Johnson. Now, Andrew Johnson is famous for pardoning every ex-Confederate. I mean, he gave them out, doled them out liberally. And Andrew Johnson is on the verge of pardoning Appleton Oaksmith when the jilted ex-wife finds out. She rushes to the White House, meets with the president, says, my ex-husband's a scoundrel, don't pardon him. And uh, Johnson listens to her. And the irony is the guy who pardons every ex-Confederate refuses to pardon Appleton Oaksmith. So he has to wait another six years until finally in 1872, Ulysses S. Grant becomes convinced that he was innocent and grants him a pardon, which finally then gives Appleton the ability to return to the United States. Um, yeah, at that point, though, his career takes another amazing turn. If it if if it if that were even possible, it really does. And it seems like he does a U-turn in his own thinking and perhaps in his politics. That's right. He remains a Democrat. So I should say he gets to back to the United States, and his first landing is or one of his first landings is in North Carolina. And he's walking down the street in Beaufort or Moorhead City, and he sees a land auction going on. And just to help the auctioneer out, he puts in a really low bid on some land, and it turns out that no one else bid. And the next day, he was walking around the street, and someone says to him, hey, you got to go pay for that land you bought. And so he winds up living the rest of his life in the on the coast of North Carolina, and in the mid-1870s, he gets elected as an independent Democrat to the North Carolina State Legislature. And I say independent because there was a regular Democrat who was pro, you know, it was after the Civil War, but pro-Confederate, pro-ex-Confederate. And then there was a Republican who ran, and, and Appleton ran kind of in between these two, these two sides. But he ran as an anti-Klan and pro-Black civil rights politician. And I don't and he won. And that's the incredible thing. He won the election. And I don't know how to explain it. I couldn't find anything in his letters, which are voluminous, to explain it. I was able to use his speeches where he campaigned and then gave speeches in the state legislature where he argued in behalf of political rights for African-Americans, or at least civil rights for African-Americans. 
but it, it's it's remarkable that this guy who who was convicted of outfitting ships for the slave trade had been so ardently pro-slavery will go on to serve with black men in the legislature and share the stage with with very famous black men like Henry Highland Garnett in New York City in the late 1870s, arguing on behalf of emancipation around the world where slavery still existed. So he has this, again, really remarkable change during Reconstruction. And then when does he pass away? So he dies a few years later in the late 1880s, and it, he has this just really tragic tragic life where he loses several children in a boating accident. He His health then fails, and his mother then is the one I close the book with. His mother is, is a really important supporting figure throughout the story. Again, we would know who she was today if her son hadn't had such a tragic life. And the whole while she is there fighting for him, trying to get him pardoned and trying to get him out of jail and then living with him and taking care of his children. And at the end of her life, she's the only one left. She has outlived five of her six sons. She's outlived her husband. She's outlived, I forget the number, six or eight or nine grandchildren. I mean, she just has the most tragic life of all. And so the end of the story sort of closes with her reflections on what has happened over the previous number of decades. And it's so interesting when she died and when he died, people said, you know, if only one had, would tell the story of Appleton Oaksmith, it would make for a great book. And my hope is that I've, I've given that to the world now by finally, after all these years, she died in 1893 or 95, finally being able to tell the story. You absolutely have done him justice. I can't recommend this book highly enough to our listeners. It's uh, fast-paced. It's received wonderful reviews, not just in the scholarly press, but in the popular press as well. It's a it's a page-turner, which you can't always say for books written by historians. <laughs> but John White is a great author. Let me ask you this to end. You said at the very beginning that his, that Appleton Oaksmith's career in many ways illuminates important moments in American history. From the, from the you know, 1849, 50 gold rush in California, all the way through to Reconstruction. Um, I'm wondering about this. He had such a colorful life. He is mm -hmm. such a colorful, complex character. I wonder, though, he seems so atypical. But I'm wondering in your mind, when you study him, are there ways in which, in fact, he is typical of Americans of this period or in some way illustrative of the America of his day? Yeah, so I'll answer. That's a great question. And I'll answer that in two ways. The first way, he is atypical in that he's the sort of Forrest Gump of the Civil War era. And yet there are a surprising number of Forrest Gumps of the Civil War era, these people who just seem to pop up in a lot of places or who interact with a lot of famous people. And so I we've been seeing more and more biographies of these, these second or third or even fourth tier figures who somehow were connected to a lot of people. So he he's interesting in that regard. And then in the in the way that I think you intended the question, you know, there's a restlessness among a lot of Americans in the Civil War era. There's a lot of movement, you know, beginning with Manifest Destiny and the California Gold Rush. And then after the Civil War, this great migration to the West, 
there's a lot of movement among Americans and this feeling of not really being rooted. And I think that he encapsulates that. He is someone who is never rooted in one place for too long. His fam I didn't even mention all the places his family lived. They moved around Maine a bit. They lived in South Carolina for a while. They lived in New York City and Brooklyn and Long Island. They, you know, he then settles in all these other places. So I think that, that he does reflect that sort of restlessness among a lot of Americans in this period. Yeah. And, and it struck me, too, that um, we tend to think it's very clearly North versus South in the Civil War. We tend to clearly think there are Union people, there are Confederate people, the twain don't mix. Um, but in your book, you, when you illuminate the murky underworld of New York City and the complexity of, of the situation with respect to who's on whose side, who's fighting for who, it seems that, to my mind at least, he illustrates some of that um, lack, perhaps, of clarity, political or moral clarity, among a lot of Americans about the war. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I always try to get my students to realize this, that if we think about it's the free North against the slave South in the Civil War, we are really missing what's going on. And that there are a lot of unionists in the Confederacy, and there are a lot of pro-slavery people in the North. And in fact, the mayor of New York City, a guy named Fernando Wood, had floated the idea of New York becoming an independent republic during the secession crisis, because New York City has extraordinary ties to the states of the Confederacy. It's New York banks that fund Southern planters in purchasing slaves. So New Yorkers are, and New York is the center of manufacturing in the country by the time you get to 1861. So they're selling a lot of things to the South. So New York business people are worried about if we go to war with half the nation, what happens to all the outstanding debt that is owed to us? Or what happens to our commercial ties to all these people who buy our products and our goods? So New York is a very complicated place with a lot of pro-slavery people. New York City certainly did not vote for Lincoln in 1860 in the presidential election because they were pro-South and pro-Democrat in their politics. Well, it is a fascinating story of 19th century America, of the Civil War, and of this amazing character, Appleton Oaksmith. Uh, let me, again, encourage our listeners to get uh, Professor White's book, Shipwreck. It's terrific. I think you can get it anywhere you buy your books. Um, I, it will reward your time with a wonderful read that provides really illuminating and uh, colorful stories um, that are worth knowing. Yeah. Jonathan White, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.